Welcome back to Good Distinctions. I'm Will Wright. And I'm Teresa Morris. And Good Distinctions are... The Spice of Life. So today we are talking about a few different things. We uh, both in the last week have seen the movie Oppenheimer, and uh, along with probably half of the world at least, it seems, uh, is seeing either Oppenheimer or the other movie, which we shall not speak of in this episode because I haven't seen it. You're going to see it and more on that yeah. later, dot, dot, dot. Anyway, so... Um, we thought, you know, it would be good to talk about not necessarily the movie, um, but the subject of the movie, namely Robert Oppenheimer, the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and what does the Catholic Church have to say about all that? Because there doesn't seem to be a consensus, especially in the United States, where everything is so charged um, towards defending patriotism at all costs and sort of seeing ourselves as American before seeing ourselves as Catholic. And uh, I know I've struggled with that in the past. I'm, I'm a, a naturalized citizen. My whole family lives in Canada. My parents and I moved to the States when I was young, and I became a citizen in ninth grade. So, I, I mean, I love this country. I'm very proud of being an American. But it doesn't mean, and I've also taught U.S. history for that matter, it doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that's come before in our country's history. In fact, there's a lot of things that we need to look at critically and examine and say, that was probably not a good move. Or in fact, say that was absolutely evil. And so uh, we'll kind of be looking at that today. But Teresa, do you have any anything mm -hmm. to add on that? Are you a proud American as well? I am a proud American. i give you a caveat to <laughs> yeah. say so, you know? Yeah, just in case I wanted to reject that premise. No, yeah, I, I really, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this because I do think it's one of the struggles that a lot of American Catholics have right now is this tension between, you know, where does my, where does my patriotism fit in line with my faith? And I think sometimes in some circles there can be a, a tendency or a temptation to make the loyalty to our country primary over our faith and not take seriously some of the teachings that the church has put out in regards to certain actions, particularly around military action or actions in times of warfare. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I also thought the movie was so, so well done. So I'm wondering if maybe just to start us off, if you could speak a little bit, just very briefly as the history expert, a bit about the historical con context of the creation of the bomb, the dropping of the bomb, and maybe just for people who have seen the movie or are going to see the movie, if they can trust what the movie is putting out in terms of historical accuracy. Sure. I mean, it, it's a Christopher Nolan movie for sure. So it does take some liberties in terms of the script. It's jumping around. It's not linear. Uh, I mean, this is the man who made Tenet. If anybody's seen that, that's there's nothing linear about that. I wouldn't say <laughs> thumbs down. It's still a good movie, but it's incredibly hard to follow. Yeah. Um, I loved Oppenheimer. I thought it was a great movie. From a historical perspective, I think almost everything was uh, accurate, especially the the black and white scenes. And I'm not really giving anything away here, but there's black and white scenes and then there's color scenes. The black and white scenes were more objective, more just sort of the historical record. And anything that was in color was a little bit more Nolanized, a little bit more commentary but still very faithful to who Oppenheimer was and the people around him and sort of these different things that were happening. And it, it also didn't hurt that the actors were incredible. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, these are some of the best actors that we have. Yeah. 
in the world. And, and Killian Murphy knocked it out of the park uh, as Oppenheimer, who played this very plagued individual. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of different reviews. Some people saying, well, he's a hero. Some people are saying, well, no, he's a villain who's trying to grapple with the morality of his actions. And I think the movie does a good job showing him as an ambiguous character. I don't think he's the hero of the movie. I don't think there is one. Um, I think it's a very thoughtful film. And, uh, you know, it all, all of this started with Albert Einstein and Enrico Fermi writing a letter to, to uh, then President Roosevelt saying, you know, the Germans are working on an atomic bomb. They have a, an atomic weapons program, uh, or at least the starts of one. We need to get moving on this. We need to think about this. And so there's a lot of interaction in the film between, um, you know, Oppenheimer has some friends and even his brother and sister-in-law who are Communist Party members. Um, he himself espouses some, or at least likes to investigate some communist ideas, uh, which he then abandons later, uh, especially once the Soviet Union starts going off track. But there's so much. I mean, it's a three-hour film, and there's a lot of history packed into it that I think is done very, very well. Obviously, there's some things that are... He has to take some liberty in storytelling, and we don't know exactly how these people would have interacted. Some of the dialogue is clearly made up. Uh, it's not like we have records of all these conversations, especially the conversations that happen in Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project. That would have been top secret, and not everything had notes taken. Um, but I think overall, the, the main thrust of it was very, very accurate. Mm -hmm. um, there was one scene that I'm not sure about. I didn't really uh, look into it later where Oppenheimer's talking to President Truman in the Oval Office. Um, it's a fantastic scene. Absolutely a commentary. You can tell that Christopher Nolan does not care for President Truman in the slightest. Uh, Gary Oldman plays Truman. I, I That blew me away. The man can play anybody. Yeah. Um, Anyway, enough about the movie and enough about the historicity, but it, it's really, really solid. I, mm -hmm. I think historically it's it's uh, knocked out of the park as far as historical dramas go. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about the scene with President Truman because it was the, one of the only scenes where there was sort of a cartoonish aspect to a character mm -hmm. being played. And um, I thought that it was really interesting that there was even just in that sense that there was a message being portrayed in the way that Truman was portrayed. Now, um, there is one line that Truman says, don't let that crybaby back in here. That mm -hmm. is on the historical record. Really? He did say that. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. So Truman did call Oppenheimer a crybaby. Um, mm. So, you know, the scene's fairly accurate. I, It's a little bit cartoonish. Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely a caricature when it right. comes to Truman. Um, but I'm also not sure it was entirely inaccurate. So... Mm. so Speaking of that, could you speak a little bit about the public perception at the time that we dropped the bomb, both of President Truman and then just the public feeling in regards to the morality of dropping the bomb and how that has kind of changed over the years? And I think right now, or maybe the latest poll that was taken, it was something like the country is pretty much split still 50-50 almost. Um, but could you talk a little bit about how people felt about Truman at the time and his decision and how that may have changed since then? Well, I think it's important to remember that Roosevelt was president for four terms before his death. Um, that's why we have term limits now. 
is because of Roosevelt, but, and Roosevelt was kind of a socialist in a sense. Um, I'm sure there's historians that are going to come after me for saying that, but it is what it is. He was, he was flirting with fascism quite a bit early on. Um, he was definitely in favor of some socialist ideas when it came to the new deal. And, um, so over the course of the presidency, he was very, very popular and the way that he handled the war effort, the American public was absolutely on his side, especially after the bombing of uh, Pearl Harbor. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the American people were fully invested in the war. Before that, they were very against getting into the war in Europe. So they didn't see <clears throat> Europe, the European conflict as an American conflict. And in fact, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States. And so there was sort of an ambiguity as to whether Hitler actually needed to be stopped uh, or, and, and even there were some, those, some of those who were German in the United States supporting Germany, because remember, we don't know, we didn't know about the Holocaust until well into the war. Uh, it wasn't actually until um, really until the, the Americans and the British and the Soviets discovered the camps and the people in the camps that we really got the full picture on what was going on. There was mm -hmm. some rumblings in Germany, but Germany wasn't exactly talking to us. Right. Um, so <clears throat> we have to kind of keep that in mind too, that it wasn't this clear cut good versus evil mm -hmm. sort of conflict that we see now. Uh, I mean, the reason that Raiders of the Lost Ark was so popular, for example, is because the Nazis are the bad guys. This is mm -hmm. my theory of Indiana Jones, by the way. Temple of Doom <laughs> was okay. Last Crusade, great. Why? Nazis as bad guys. Mm -hmm. The fourth one was terrible. Why? Because the Nazis were in it. It was Soviets. Who cares about that? Whatever. <laughs> and I'm not even watching Dial of Destiny because of what they did in the fourth one. It was so bad, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, aliens. Gotta be aliens. Anyway. This is the movie episode. <laughs> uh, so irritating. Um, what was I saying? Anyway, so once Pearl Harbor was attacked, the American public were galvanized into joining the war effort, not in Europe, but against uh, Japan, which is interesting because at the time, Hawaii wasn't a state. It was still a territory. Uh, but because it was an American base that was attacked, it was an attack on U.S. soil. And so the, the American public were galvanized by it. FDR gives a speech the next day saying this is a day that will live in infamy, December 7th, 1942. Um, December 8th, he gives this talk and Congress is asked by him to declare war against Japan. They do that a couple days later, Nazi Germany and Italy, fascist Italy, declare war on the United States and we're entered into a two-front war. Well, when we're at war with Japan, we're, we're decimating them. It, huge, huge American casualties, to be sure. But we are winning the tug of war. And mm -hmm. it is very much like a tug of war because very early on at the Battle of Midway, the U.S. had cracked the Japanese naval code, the secret code, in about six months. Mm -hmm. So we enter the war. They'd already cracked the J Japanese naval code, which, by the way, the, the, Germans, the German code... Uh, there's a movie about that as well that's pretty good, Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> talking about cracking the Enigma Code. That took years. We cracked the Japanese Naval Code in six months, and we didn't mm -hmm. let them know. And so we knew they were going for Midway. And so we went there first, ambushed them, had a decisive victory, 
and then sort of went down towards um, the islands just north of Australia because Australia was a ally of ours. And then just sort of worked our way up on this island hopping campaign towards the Japanese mainland. All along the way, there's now, I mean, you think about the war happening in two places at once. The European conflict is raging on. There's now American boots on the ground um, after D-Day and the invasion of Normandy, which the Americans featured prominently in. Lots of American soldiers died on the beaches of Normandy. A lot of a lot of Americans died in the Battle of the Bulge, um, <clears throat> and then finally Hitler was uh, trapped in Berlin, kills himself, and the Soviets take Berlin, and the war in Europe is over. Meanwhile, the Trinity Test is happening in July. The Manhattan Project has been kind of culminating, coming to an end, and at the same time, the Potsdam Conference is about to happen. There was an earlier conference called the Yalta Conference which had Winston Churchill and Harry Truman and uh, because Roosevelt died in office of polio and Stalin. And then in uh, the Potsdam conference in July of that year, trying to determine, okay, what is Europe going to look like after the war? Um, which was a huge deal because the treaty of Versailles that ended world war one in a lot of ways led to world war two. I'm not going to go into that, but it was a mess. So they really wanted to get it right. And then they also wanted to see what would it look like when the Japanese surrender? What, <clears throat> what would happen afterwards? How would power be distributed? And, and at the Potsdam conference, especially, it was what's going to happen to Germany? What's going to happen to Berlin? Um, and uh, at that conference at Potsdam, Clement Attlee had uh, become prime minister of Britain. Um, Winston Churchill was, was voted out. And so you have Stalin, Truman, and Clement Attlee. And they're all speaking in Potsdam, Germany. And Truman has just learned that the Trinity test was a success. Mm -hmm. And so basically, he goes up to Stalin while he's at this conference and doesn't tell him what he has, but he says, kind of like, hey, wait and see what we have, buddy. Mm -hmm. um, we got something that's going to blow your socks off. And, pardon the pun, and <laughs> Stalin... Uh, basically insinuates that they should use it against Japan. Well, he has no idea what they have. Hmm. Truman does know, and he says, maybe yeah. we will. So it's kind of this idea of like Stalin being the strongman type, and then hmm. Truman also trying to reciprocate that steel man, that strongman image. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so all of that to say, it's now summer of 1945. We've taken Iwo Jima and Okinawa, so, which means that we're close enough for our new bombers to reach the Japanese mainland and come back. Because that was the big issue. We were far enough mm, away. Yeah. We could get the bombers to Japan, but we couldn't get them back. We couldn't get enough fuel. Yeah. So now we're close enough that we can actually carry out bombing runs on the Japanese mainland. And we have two bombs, a uranium bomb and a plutonium bomb, ready to go. Um, and so Truman knows all this. They have several meetings, one of which is in the movie Oppenheimer with the Secretary of War, where they're talking about what is to be done. Well, as far as the American public are concerned, they are completely weary of the war. All of the men basically have gone to fight in Europe or in Asia, and many, many of them have died. And so there's, there's families without fathers, there's families without sons. Um, 
a lot of women as well were not necessarily killed, but are part of this war effort. They're weary. They want to come back home. Those who are left at home are involved in industry and working very hard to support the war effort. Everybody's tired. The last mm -hmm. thing they want is an extended campaign in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so what was being put forward in the media and in the public conversation was, well, the only way we're going to take Japan is if we, because remember, the American public doesn't know about the bombs. Right. They have no idea. The only people that know are Truman, his cabinet, and the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. So it's a very small amount of people making a huge momentous decision. Mm -hmm. So the American public are basically thinking, okay, well, the Japanese people aren't going to um, surrender because, you know, the they're emperor worshipers. It's a totally different culture. They're going to fight to the last man. They know about how the Japanese fought in Iwo Jima and Okinawa and the other islands. Uh, I mean, they were ruthless. They would rather commit suicide than be taken prisoner. And unfortunately, every single village along the way, they would convince them to commit suicide rather than be taken prisoner by the Americans because they would tell them these horrible stories about how the Americans treat their prisoners. Mm -hmm. which is, of course, completely untrue. Right. Uh, the Japanese were actually horrendous to their prisoners. Just ask the Chinese. Um, mm -hmm. As the Chinese and the Japanese had been fighting for years before in the Sino-Japanese War, mm -hmm. before America entered World War II. So there's a lot of things happening. Mm -hmm. And the American public are seeing this idea of a campaign of the mainland. They know it's millions of Japanese versus uh, the American soldiers. And they didn't doubt the resolve of the American uh, military. They didn't think that the American military couldn't win. They just thought it would be thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of lives lost on both sides. And so the idea was, in terms of Truman and his cabinet, if we drop the atomic bomb and show the power of what we have, and not only that, but drop another one a few days later, just to show them that we can keep doing this indefinitely, which of course is not true. We only had two bombs, but nobody knew yeah. that. Um, then they will certainly uh, surrender. In retrospect, there's a lot of historical issues with that argumentation. Even philosophically, there's a lot of issues with that argumentation. I'm sure we're going to get into that uh, mm -hmm. today. But historically, anyway, just to answer the, the main question here, the American people didn't have a lot of information, but what they did know is they wanted the war to be over. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when it comes to war, especially in the modern world, you have to have the public behind you. Mm -hmm. This is why Roosevelt wanted to get into the war in Europe, but he couldn't. Mm -hmm. And so he knew the only way to do that was <clears throat> to have the American people on his side, which opens up a whole other can of worms about how much did Roosevelt know about Pearl Harbor before it happened and what did he let happen? Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he knew the attack was coming and he let it happen. Because um, there's three different levels. You can either know about it and make it happen. That would be like an intentional, um, you know, make it, making the actual thing take place. The second level would be knowing about it and then letting it happen, sort of just stepping back and letting the horrible thing take place. Or not knowing about it and it happens. And then mm -hmm. you respond to it. Um, mm -hmm. my personal opinion is that Roosevelt was in that middle position. He knew a lot more, um, than he let on mm -hmm. and was allowing that to give us that entrance into the war. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately we've seen a lot of that in U S history with different sort of 
things happening um, and then us entering the war, like the sinking of the uh, British ship, ship Lusitania or the USS Maine being destroyed and us entering the Spanish-American War. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of precedent for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, as far as Japan goes, we were ready to stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody wanted to invade the mainland, even the small islands of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, especially Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima is like 2.5 miles across. I mean, it's a fairly mm-hmm. small island. Mm-hmm. And that monument that's in D.C. of the soldiers raising the flag um, on Iwo Jima Hill, that, that's from Iwo Jima. It's mm-hmm. this very, very mountainous island. And it took them days to get up the mountain because of how hard the Japanese were fighting. And they also don't fight fair. Yeah. I mean, they they hid on the island and the Americans bombarded before they entered. And they thought they had taken everyone out because they got under the beaches. There was nobody firing on them. And it wasn't until they got into a kill zone that the Japanese actually popped out and started killing American soldiers. Mm-hmm. So, and not only that, when they knew that they were f- going to lose, they would carry out bonsai attacks where they would take bayonets and grenades and uh, swords and knives and just charge uh, and take out as many with them as they could. Mm-hmm. Or the kamikaze fighters, kamikaze meaning divine wind, so they, they believed that they were um, serving the emperor when they did this, where they would fly their ships directly into planes and make them into missiles. Mm-hmm. So this was the enemy we were fighting. And so as far as the American public were concerned, the idea of invading the Japanese mainland was just horrific to even think about mm-hmm. uh, because we knew what we were up against. Right. Which I think is one of the common arguments that I hear, or just one of the narratives that comes up in discussing the morality of using the atomic bomb is, well, we can't even imagine what it would be like to be part of a war like that, that that's not part of our modern experience as Americans or we can't imagine, you know, what we would do if we were President Truman. And I think that's fair to say that, you know, we don't have the experience of being in such an intense war the way that the American people were back then. And we don't, you know, none of us have the experience of being president and having a decision like that put on our shoulders. But that doesn't excuse us from being able to make a claim about the morality of what was done. So we can have mm-hmm. empathy for the circumstances of the time and the people who were making those decisions but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't still make a claim and it doesn't mean that we're not capable of making a claim about the morality of the decisions that were made. Well, and as far as the decisions that were made, were so Truman, I was talking about what the American public knew. Well, let's mm-hmm. look at what Truman knew. Truman's the president mm-hmm. of the United States. He has a security council that is advising him. He has the Manhattan Project that it's advising him. Um, he has his cabinet and they're giving him all of the best information. And the historical record shows that they only considered two options in the end. Mm-hmm. One was to go all out and drop both bombs on um, basically war effort cities. Uh, mm-hmm. So these were industrialized cities with factories that supported the war effort or a full-blown invasion of the Japanese mainland. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with what you said. We can have some sympathy, but at the same time, for something that's so intense, I'd like more than two possibilities, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when those are the two possibilities. I feel -hmm. like there's got to be some other options. Like for one of them, uh, for one thing, 
if I was Truman, I would have said, is there a way I can drop one of these bombs where its devastating effects are shown to the Japanese officials who make decisions without the tremendous loss of life? Mm-hmm. Um, and without even getting into the moral implications of targeting who they targeted, which I know we'll right. talk about later. But there's there has to be a way. There, there's plenty of, of spaces where... Um, they could have even invited through diplomatic channels the Japanese to witness the power of a nuclear explosion from mm-hmm. a safe distance even and say, you know, you want to be at least 20 miles away, right. um, but just wait and see. And then when you go and check it out, you want to wear this type of equipment mm-hmm. um, because it's right. going to leave some radiation. I mean, that would just, I think psychologically, mm-hmm. that might actually do more uh, than what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yes, there's the terrible mm-hmm. loss of life, but they could see it. It was tangible, which mm-hmm. was the argument, right? Is we right, want to go full right. out. We want to show them the full effects. But at the same time, leaving it up to their imagination to say, if this is what happened to this location, then you can mm-hmm. have some before and after pictures. Imagine what this would do to a human body or a mm-hmm. building, especially right. all the wood buildings that were in mm-hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Yeah, to be able to think about the implications, which is now it's one of the things that it was put into the Geneva Conventions is that if you are going to bomb any specific area of enemy territory that you give a heads up and that you give them the ability to clear their civilians out ahead of time. And so even that idea, you know, if you're going to use something so new and so extreme that you would probably want a way to display power and display effects and let people balance the implications of what that could do to your country and to your people before actually going ahead and doing it. Well, and one of the things they said in Oppenheimer that I loved was that we're not creating a new weapon. We're creating a new war world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that's dead, right. This is a new way to approach warfare. Now, unfortunately, Oppenheimer's argument that was once we, once we see the full effects of this bomb, Warfare as we know it will cease. And of course, we know from history that's not yeah. true. That didn't happen. Yeah. And it's still absolutely horrendous. And the mere fact, for example, that meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is saying that he's willing to use tactical nukes in Ukraine is just shows how psychopathic this man is. Mm-hmm. Um, because not only do we have the full effects of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we can go there, and we can even see today like the outline of people in shadows on steps and on walls because they were vaporized. Mm -hmm. We can also see the footage from the 1950s and early 60s of tests in -hmm. full color, uh, which, by the way, is illegal now. We're not allowed to test nuclear bombs uh, as a general rule globally um, because Mm -hmm. of the horrible effects that it has on weather and radiation and how... uh, I mean, some of these bombs are, it's hard to put into words how big the explosion is, how Mm -hmm. many kilotons of TNT equivalent it would be, uh, and the accompanying radiation. It's, it's staggering. Mm -hmm. It's way more than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. Um, even, uh, the, the largest bomb ever detonated by the, uh, Russians, the Tsar Bomba is something to the tune of at least three or four powers of magnitude bigger than the mm. atomic bomb. I mean, it's, it, it's just yeah. unthinkable. 
Um, yeah. And they exploded it in their own country, which I it, yeah. absolutely nuts what happened during the Cold War, but we, we can't get into that because that would take us way too far afield from an already large topic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and the bomb, the atomic bomb itself actually only exploded like 2% of its capability or something. Like it wasn't even fully detonated to like the extent that it could have been. So so the the vast amount of harm that was done isn't even, you know, touching on on what could have happened there. Um so I think you know starting to look at this moral question of I think there's two ways to look at the morality of it. There's the question of should we have done it at the time? And then there's this retrospective look of was that okay that we did that? And it doesn't change the conclusion, right? That if something is wrong, it's going to be wrong, whether or not it was wrong then or, or now. Um, but I do think, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, the circumstances of the time, there was a lot happening and we didn't have all of the information that we have now about the effects of radiation. We could not have anticipated certain things like the amount of prejudice that happened in Japan, that people who were exposed to the radiation were really shunned by the Japanese people and that there, there was a lot of discrimination that occurred because of the people who were exposed to the radiation. So there are all those, you know, social effects and medical effects that have happened since then that we didn't really understand. Mm. That being said, it doesn't change the nature of the moral decision at the time. So I think maybe starting to go into that conversation about how should we look at this decision and there's a philosophical view of this that we can talk about. And then there's also the viewpoint of the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church has come out and made statements about this many times over. Um, so there are a lot of famous Catholics who have made statements about this. You know, Venerable Fulton Sheen called this our national sin. But the church itself, from the position of the Vatican, has also made some statements. And I think that those are really important to look at, especially when we're trying to reach a place of clarity of, as American Catholics in particular, how are we supposed to view this? And we're always supposed to give primacy to what the church says over any other loyalty that we have. Um, so do you want to talk about the philosophical viewpoints of this first and then move into church Yeah, views? well, I think they're actually, I think they're synonymous here. I, I don't think mm. there's any, um, there's anything that doesn't overlap. Mm. Uh I mean, in terms of the philosophy and the moral theology, it boils down to like everything that's been written officially through the Vatican channels, magisterial texts, boils down to two principles, namely that non-combatants may never be intentionally and directly targeted and that proportionality must be met. And so basically that's three things, right? The good effect of the action is what's intended. The bad effect is not a means to produce that good effect. And the good effect is proportional to the bad effect. At least that's mm -hmm. the way I understand proportional um, proportionality. Mm -hmm. So we can't do something bad in order for something good to happen later. Uh, and we can get into double effect in a second. But mm -hmm. I want to clarify non-combatants too, because that's something that I don't think people fully understand is non-combatants doesn't mean civilians. There's there's military and there's civilians, right? That's the the big one. Well, within the military, there's combatants and non-combatants. Combatants mm -hmm. would be the guys with guns 
who are actually fighting the war, the people in the planes who are dropping the bombs, the people who are carrying out um, actual, you know, um, targeting and and attacking and these sorts of things, or even defending. Mm -hmm. Whereas non-combatants are the support staffs, the combat medics, the... um, the 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 drivers even of some in some situations like of ambulance drivers or medics in general chaplains um, people working in factories people who are engineers uh, there's so many different jobs I mean especially mm-hmm. when it comes to something so big as the Pacific Theater or the European Theater you're talking about bringing an entire city with you mm-hmm. right, logistically in terms of of supply and uh, and these sorts of things. You have to have that chain, the supply chain open, or you can't carry out the missions. Mm-hmm. You can't carry on the campaign. And so there's a lot of people from almost every single profession that are taking part in the war effort as mm-hmm. military personnel. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, those are not all combatants. Some of them are non-combatants. And if you target non-combatants, that is evil, period. Mm-hmm. Like there's no justification for it. And that's true whether you're looking at what globally we agree with as an Mm -hmm. international community or what the Catholic church says. So I really do think that the approach is the same Mm -hmm. is that proportionality has to be met and non-combatants may not be targeted. Mm -hmm. And if we apply those to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, well, there's some ambiguity as to whether we told the Japanese where these bombs were going to happen. Um, Also, what's not known is that half of the Japanese military officials at the time wanted to sue for peace before the bomb uh, was dropped. The emperor himself wanted to surrender. This -hmm. is something that not many people know about. I'm positive that Truman knew about it and Mm -hmm. decided not to act on it Mm -hmm. because the other half of the Japanese officials wanted to keep fighting the war. Well, the other half of the Japanese officials were trying to commit a coup against the emperor and kill his family and him. Hmm. So this was not a cut and dry thing in retrospect. Now, of course, the American people didn't know that. Most of the Japanese people didn't know that. It was a shock to them because after the bombs were dropped, the emperor, who never spoke in public, got on the radio to announce, I mean, talk about a power move. The emperor speaks on the radio to the Japanese public saying, we're surrendering. And that was that. I mean, the other mm-hmm. officials who were trying to carry out the coup were were put to rest. Um, but Truman, I'm sure, knew this. And so he's he's targeting Hiroshima and Nagasaki because they're supporting the war effort. Well, there's no combatants in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's all non-combatants or civilians. Mm-hmm. And they said that they were going to target the factories. Well, they didn't. They dropped the bomb right on their houses. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, talk about going from bad to worse. This is absolutely clear that um, that non-combatants are being targeted. And then as far as proportionality, the good effect is that the war ended. But the bad effect is that you're targeting non-combatants and committing horrific murder on a large scale. Because mm-hmm. it is murder. I mean, it's the intentional killing of innocent human people. And this is where we run into some problems with some uber patriotic Americans saying, well, no, every single Japanese person was part of the war effort. None of them were innocent. So I want you to talk on that for a moment. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, I think that 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 
response that the idea that, you know, a five-year-old Japanese boy deserved to die because there was there, there was some type of positive effect that would come out of that is quite frankly, a ridiculous claim to make. And there's no way to justify that through this idea of proportionality. And it's a very consequentialist viewpoint to say that here's this good effect that we're trying to get to, which is a great goal. I think everyone wanted to have the Mm -hmm. war end. You know, we've talked about this, that we, we were done with this. We didn't want more people to die. We wanted to save as many American lives as possible. Those are great goals. And those are great goals to actively pursue. But if we are pursuing an end goal at all costs, we have to be extremely cautious of that mentality because it means that we can justify any action in order to get to the good effect that we are seeking. And we can't do that. So one of the ways that I try to help my students understand that idea as we have worked through it in in various classes is if we're taking this overall argument of, well, so many more lives would be lost. And, you know, we, this was really beneficial because we ended the war early and we didn't have to lose more lives. If we proposed a solution that said the exact same number of Japanese people would die, but they were shot individually, would you still be okay with that? And typically the answer is no. And it's like, well, the result is the same. So if we have hesitation to saying, well, we're going to shoot people individually, the exact same number of people die, and some of them probably die in a more humane way by just being shot in the head than the horrific way some people died slowly over, you know, over the course of four days, the death toll rose drastically that, you know, there are all these stories of people who are like holding their eyeballs in their hands and just people died horrific deaths after the initial, you know, instant instantaneous death of so many uh, Japanese civilians. But if we said, you know, we were going to individually kill the exact same number of people in order to get to this end goal of ending the war, would we still be okay with that? And people typically say no. And so that kind of highlights this point of we cannot justify an evil action in order to get to a good effect. And just because it was like more instantaneous doesn't, doesn't make it okay at all. So so I think for, for me, from my perspective, it's this really hyper view of consequentialism that we're using to justify this action. And we have to really be very intentional about drawing a super clear distinction between, yes, we can legitimately and justly pursue good effects like the end of a war and the saving of lives. But if the way that we get there is through the intentional murder of innocent lives and even through, you know, just this it, terror, and yeah, I, I think it was a terrorist move that we're trying to instill that in, in a country, we, we can't justify that. And, and it doesn't matter if, you know, an, an eight-year-old Japanese girl was very loyal to her country. You know, she, she's not really going to pose a threat to an American soldier. So I think that we have to be really clear in not condoning that line of argument. Well, we also need to keep in mind that patriotism is a is a sub-virtue of piety, which is a sub-virtue of justice. And so if these people are being patriotic to Japan and supporting the war effort and supporting their emperor and supporting their culture and their family, and who of us wouldn't do the same? 
I think it's absurd to say that, because really what it boils down to is that Japanese lives mean less than American lives. Right. And I just never can get on board with that line of mm-hmm. thinking. But I really do think that's what it boils down to. Or that 200,000 or more Japanese lives um, is somehow less horrible than 2 million lives of American and Japanese loss, which would have resulted from invading the mainland. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not in favor of invading the Japanese mainland. I mm-hmm. don't think there was any reason to do it. Um, I think we could have, we could have carried out a blockade. They weren't coming back. This is the thing is, is at the battle of, um, at the battle of the Philippine sea, we pretty much decimated their Navy. They had no more Navy. They had some planes left on the Japanese mainland, but we can take out zero fighters without a huge problem. And if we put our aircraft carriers far enough away from the Japanese mainland, they're not going to be able to reach them. Mm-hmm. And yes, there might be some kamikaze fighters, but if if they're fighting that far away from the mainland, then it's a matter of having good spotters and shooting them down before they can do us harm. Mm-hmm. That could have gone on fairly well indefinitely. Mm-hmm. The Chinese were our allies in World War II, uh, and so we've got that covered. We could have made an agreement with the Soviet Union to kind of block off the northern route. Um, there were other ways to handle this. But mm-hmm. I think when it boils down to it, Truman wanted to show just how big our stick was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if he was alive today, he would be driving a very large truck. We'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> ah, anyway, Probably I, a Tesla truck. Uh, a cyber truck, yeah. No, 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 no. He's way too uh, manly for that. American. You know? <laughs> Got to have a big old Ford or something or a Chevy. <laughs> Uh, or a Dodge. Listen, if you're a truck driver, don't come after me. I'm just saying there's a stereotype for a reason. Um, it just, it seems like he was trying to prove a point to Stalin. I hmm. don't think it had much to do with the Japanese or the war effort. I think there was a lot of politicking. And I, you mentioned sort of uh, casually that this was a terrorist action, which is a hot take. And I'm not going to let it go because I agree with you. I just want to add my voice to that. Yes, no, yeah. it was terrorism. I if if someone did this to us, how would we feel yeah. about that? Mm-hmm. And and this whole idea of well, 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 they're emperor worshippers, and so they're they're just pagans. It's like pagans, though they may be, they're still human beings with dignity. And by the way, emperor worship is not the same as we understand worship. Um, mm-hmm. They believe that the emperor was the stand-in for the divine, but they didn't believe that he was God incarnate. It's not like our view of Jesus Christ. They believe right. that he was a stand-in for the divine, that when he spoke, he spoke with the authority of the gods. Well, okay. How many different examples of that in history can we find? I mean, there's mm-hmm. the the Roman emperors were basically the same. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the Roman people worshipped the Roman emperor in the same way that we go to mass mm-hmm. and worship Jesus Christ. It's not the same thing. And I've heard a lot of Americans say the same thing as, well, it's all part of the war effort because it's all centered on the person of the emperor and they worshiped him as God. And so they would never surrender. Hmm. But again, we know that the emperor wanted to sue for peace. He wanted to surrender unconditionally, mind you. Yeah. Um, The thought that Truman wouldn't have known that at all Mm -hmm. seems incredibly unlikely to me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I just don't buy it. Yeah. And it also, I know we've kind of harped on this point, but I, I just think it really is worth being very clear about that the circumstances of the culture someone lives in or the personal beliefs that they have or any type of, you know, circumstance regarding their life in no way determines the worth and value of their life. And we cannot ever say this person is more or less worthy of living a life because of, you know, who they worship or how they worship or what country they're loyal to or their personal beliefs. We can't make that claim. And especially as Americans in in such a melting pot of a country, we definitely can't make that claim. And it really is surprising to me how many people who in general adhere to very pro-life beliefs in other areas who seem to be okay with the dropping of this bomb because the deliberate taking of a human life is always, always evil. An innocent human life is always evil. There's never a way to justify that. And that rests on the premise that the circumstances of someone's life in no way determine the the value of their life or their right to life. And so that's really important to know. And when we're looking at, you know, like, oh, they worship the emperor and this means something well, we're making a claim about the worthiness of their life based on a circumstance that we we can't do. And a lot and that of we people, can't understand, frankly. Right, exactly. Exactly. And a lot of people in the world feel that way about Americans and our patriotism and the way that we exist in the world. And they think that Americans, because of how we have engaged in certain wars or whatever, deserve to die. And we also would disagree with that. And so we can't pick and choose when we use this norm, which is that all human beings have an inherent right to life and it is always wrong to take innocent human life. So just because it was a highly charged situation doesn't justify it at all. Well, and and just to be very clear on this, the bombing of Tokyo and Dresden and Hamburg, where we we carpet bombed, where we just went along and indiscriminately dropped bombs across a large swath of area where there are non-combatants and civilians is equally reprehensible mm. as dropping the atomic bombs. They are both wrong. In fact, the, the later um, Geneva conventions, as well as everything the church has said, especially Pacham and Terrace from John the 23rd and others, John Paul II's wrote, written about this. Mm-hmm. Benedict's written about this. Pope Francis has written about this. Paul VI wrote about it. I, it's very clear that every Pope after the war said that having a, not only using atomic weapons, but possessing them or possessing any nuclear device is wrong. Mm-hmm. Now that's very difficult and we can get into that in a minute, but I want to make another point here is like, even though carpet bombing of Tokyo and Dresden and Hamburg is just as reprehensible as atomic weaponry, that doesn't mean that we can't use big bombs or big mm-hmm. missiles. Like I'm thinking of, um, in Syria, uh, Donald Trump dropped uh, the Moab, the mother of all bombs, right? He dropped it on the Syrian cave complex because uh, of something that they did, which crossed a line, which President Obama put a red line in the sand and then moved it back three times. And Trump basically just said, well, an American president said this to you and I'm an American president now, so I'm going to follow through on this. Drop that Mm -hmm. bomb, which is designed to collapse cave complexes. That's what it's for. It did its job and 
all of them died. Well, these are not non-combatants. These are Syrian terrorists who are actively killing their own people. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or that I relish in that, but that's a very different situation and something that we can talk about the prudence of and all these different things, especially mm -hmm. the prudence of talking to the Syrian ambassador sitting across from you at the dinner table while you're carrying this out and telling him that we are doing this. Mm -hmm. Trump was a special individual. Anyway. Yeah. Um, still is. But still is, still is. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a character. Anyway, without getting into the politics, um, we also have abilities today of, of hypersonic missiles that can target aircraft carriers and in one hit destroy them. So that would be an interesting thing to look at, I think, because what's the difference between that and dropping an atomic bomb? They're, they're equally devastating in a lot of different ways, at least to the people there. I mean, every single one of those people on that aircraft carrier are dead if this thing explodes. Mm -hmm. But if we have those capabilities and there's a reason for it, these are not non-combatants. These are people on an active military camp, uh, mission, right? They're on the aircraft carrier, which has one purpose, to conduct um, offense and defense. This is not some city with uh, civilians on board. Um, it's it sort of assumed that if you're on an aircraft carrier, it could sink. <laughs> That's sort of implicit in it. Right? Mm -hmm. Kind of the same thing with a plane. Uh, if you're in a plane that drops a bomb, well, it doesn't really matter whether you're the navigator, the pilot, the co-pilot, or the person who's targeting. Um, you're all in the same, I was going to say the same boat together, but you're in the same plane together. Mm -hmm. So like, it, it kind of goes without saying that you're part and parcel of the direct war effort mm -hmm. um, to carry out certain strikes. Um, so I think that's a different yeah. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Which is also part of the, you know, the official rules of warfare, which there are quite a few, which is, it's kind of funny that, you know, we even have that, but it, it's extremely helpful um, that, that there are legitimate rules of warfare that countries are expected to abide by. And one of them is that, you know, you're only supposed to engage with people in the military of the country you are battling. And so that's why, you know, it's important that there's insignia so that it's like, I'm wearing a uniform so that someone else knows I have consented to potentially die for my country, right? And that's other person has as well. So we're allowed to fight each other, which then, you know, you can get into other situations where it's like, that's why the Taliban is so problematic because they don't wear proper insignia. And so there are, there are issues surrounding that as well. But to go to your point about an aircraft carrier, carrier there's certain ways that we can signal to to an enemy that this is a group of people who have consented to the risk of death for the sake of their country and that allows for much more ethical fighting and that's Whereas I think, where a dry dock would not like if you're a if you're a right. worker on a dry dock you're not consenting to die for your country Exactly. I guess to some extent you are by taking an oath of loyalty to, and joining the military, but it's not it's the not same. It's not the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, there's I think we have to keep in mind that non-combatants can't be intentionally targeted and mm -hmm. proportionality has to be met. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, please, people listening, don't take from this that I'm in favor of indiscriminately hypersonic missiling aircraft carriers if yeah. we go to war. Um, <laughs> it would depend on the circumstances. 
as like when I was getting a, I was an economics major for two years in UNC and uh, my professors always would say, well, it depends. That was their favorite mm-hmm. answer to everything. And I think in political science, economics and warfare, it depends, yeah. comes up a lot, mm-hmm. but sometimes mm-hmm. it is not. And mm-hmm. I think using atomic weapons, nuclear weapons and uh, carpet bombing indiscriminately killing non-combatants and civilians that we can just say with certainty that in every circumstance that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, in Gaudium, it's, but Gaudium it's talks about this and it says mm-hmm. that uh, nuclear weapons exceeds the limits of legitimate defense. And that term is something that people try to interpret in order to actually justify the use of, of weapons of mass destruction. And I think it's worth noting that the concept of a just war and just war theory has evolved over time. So when St. Augustine was working with this idea or Thomas Aquinas was working with this idea, they could not have anticipated the capacity that we have to destroy Mm -hmm. entire countries that we do now. And one of the the things that's often talked about is this concept of like self-defense. And so this term defense was used in Gaudium et Spes and people have said, well, they didn't really know what they were talking about because they're using this term defense. And um, it's important to note that when we're talking about these in terms of defense or in terms of aggression, the church has the same standpoint, which is that we just shouldn't be using them at all. And we actually shouldn't even be having them at all. And some people say, well, you know, uh, war is only ethical or engaging in war tactics is only ethical in active self-defense. And that's also a, a bit of a misinterpretation as well, that we can be responsive without actually directly responding to, to a current aggressor. So for example, like we can we can engage in warfare and we can attack a country in order to like take back stolen land, right? Mm -hmm. That that's not, you're not acting in self-defense in that moment, right? No one's actually attacking you and we're responding, but it's a responsive idea. And that is ethical. Um, So just to kind of note that there's, there's a lot of distinctions and a lot of nuance in these terms and um, people who try to like freely interpret just war theory or try to interpret it incorrectly or try to say that the church doesn't know what she's talking about. The church very much knows what she's talking about and has put a lot of thought into this consistently over and over and over and consistently says that these weapons, even the possession of these weapons is exceeding the limits of what is a legitimate, justified defense and protection of a country. So if you want to talk a little bit about the the difference between using versus even owning, because some people are, I think most people are actually very surprised at the church's stance on that particular issue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's the fruit of reflection and contemplation over the last decades, especially the cold war and, um, things like the Cuban missile crisis and a few other nuclear conflicts that we have. It's, uh, It was an arms race after World War II between the Soviet Union and the United States. Absolutely. Some other uh, countries became nuclear powers along the way. There's only a handful. Um, But the amount of nuclear arms that we have is in the hundreds, if not thousands. I can't keep track because they keep going up and down depending on who's president and what the policies Mm -hmm. are. Because there's nuclear warheads 
And then there's missiles Mm -hmm. that the nuclear warheads go on. And so how many of those are ready to go right now? I don't know. I'm not in the military. I don't have security clearance. And I wouldn't be talking about it anyway, even if I did. (laughs) You'd be kicked out. (laughs) Exactly. I'd lose my uh, security clearance. But (laughs) I... It it's so many, and one of these can destroy an entire city. Um, so when you look at it and you say, okay, well, in 1945, when we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we did not have any more. I mean, we were enriching plutonium and uranium. They were working on the H bomb project in um, the 1950s which are super bombs. I mean, they're, they're huge. The way they explained it in Oppenheimer, I think was great that even mm-hmm, my non physics mm-hmm. mind could apprehend yeah. it is mm-hmm. that basically it's, it's hydrogen, it's heavy water that's being ignited by the nuclear explosion to make the impact even larger. Mm-hmm. Well, these super bombs, I mean, imagine the devastating effect it would have on land, which by the way, if these things aren't detonated properly, it could cause cataclysms that the world has never seen. The reason that we don't explode the, like Oppenheimer says this in the movie where he says, uh, you know, don't, don't explode it too high in the air or it won't uh, have the effect on the land that you want it to. And then he's basically told like, you made the bomb, let us handle actually using it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I, what didn't come up in the movie, which I bring up in class is if the bomb is exploded on the ground, all of that dirt has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's going to go straight up into the air. Well, what happens if you have all of that particulate creating a giant super cloud that is now going over some other continent? Um, I mean, imagine if you had a few of these going off at the same time. It would cause a global cooling like we've never seen before because the sun would not be able to get to Earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so plants would die, crops would fail, people would die in large numbers. I mean, it would be cataclysmic. Mm -hmm. And that's only if a few bombs went off around the world. So merely using them at this point, now that more than one nation has them, is really unthinkable, which was the whole idea of mutually assured destruction, the Mm -hmm. idea of MAD, M-A-D, right? That if we fire our bombs you're going to respond in kind and fire your bombs at us. And we don't have the capabilities to shoot them down. And so bombs are going to be going off on both sides of the planet, causing potentially a nuclear winter, um, causing widespread death and destruction. Communication would go down. Um, It was because of this, by the way, that the internet was created because they wanted Mm -hmm. to figure out ways to connect different cities that if this city's nuked, we can still get communications, not only only for phone lines, but what they originally called the ARPANET. So that was a military project. Um, The space race was fueled by nuclear weapons because if we can put a man on the moon, then we can launch an ICBM to hit anywhere in the globe that we want. Mm -hmm. Um, Intercontinental ballistic missile, by the way, just in case anyone didn't know what an ICBM is. For the glossary. Yeah, so there's all these different ways that we're inventing even after the atomic bomb is made to destroy untold large amounts of people and land and potentially the entire globe. And these things were on a a trigger switch. If the United States launched a missile at at the Soviet Union, that's it. There is no need for the chain of command. The Soviets would return fire and vice versa. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's there's one instance where a Soviet commander gets the order to fire because they see an ICBM, what they think is an ICBM on their radar. And they say, well, we have to return fire before we're destroyed. And this one man, I can't remember his name and I can't remember when, um, but he basically said, something feels wrong to me. I want you to verify, scramble a fighter, mm-hmm. get up there and look. And they said, well, we, we don't have time for this. We have to return fire. And he said, just do it. Well, it turns out it was a flock of birds. Oh my gosh. And so this man, this one Russian, literally saved the world. Because if the Russians had returned fire, really what they're doing is they're, they're firing first. Mm-hmm. And then the Americans would return fire. Yeah. And you'd have missiles being launched both directions in large quantities. So the there's been a lot of development since then over the Cold War, especially in the late 80s uh, with nuclear non-proliferation treaties between Reagan and Gorbachev. They greatly scaled back the amount of nuclear weapons that were active and ready to go, right? The nuclear warheads on the ICBMs. Um, but the church along the way is giving us principles, not necessarily giving us something pragmatic and prudent. Um, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Pope Francis is very clear on this. He thinks that all, all nuclear weapons should be dismantled. Well, if you do that, and, and there's a pragmatic argument here that I think has some merit, the only people that would have them are the people that we absolutely don't want to have them. So -hmm. there is a sort of deterrence effect. But at the same time, if a missile is launched and then another one is returned, we're still all screwed. We're all dead. Like there is no way out of this. If a nuclear bomb is fired from one nuclear power to another, it's going to cause a chain of events that will end in the destruction of the world. Mm-hmm. which I think the movie Oppenheimer does a brilliant job at the mm-hmm. end of making you think about. Mm-hmm. Um, the final scene is just art- artistically masterful. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm really not going to give it away. You should really go watch this movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, this whole idea of mutually assured destruction and the insane prolif- proliferation of nuclear devices um, and we're still dealing with it. It's not like we can just say, okay, well, we'll just scale back all of our nuclear capabilities because we have, uh, you know, as Trump called him, little rocket man over there in North Korea, um, very close to uh, having nuclear bombs that can reach mainland United States. Mm-hmm. Well, what deterrence is there to him if we don't have any left? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're in this very precarious uh, standoff Mm-hmm. basically, that I'm not sure how we're going to get back from. I'm not right. sure that we can get back from it, mm-hmm. to be honest. So I think we're going to mm-hmm. have some. But that mm-hmm. doesn't stop the church from rightly and justly saying even having them is wrong because we can never justly use them. Mm-hmm. And so how can you possess something that you can never justly use? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting conundrum that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think that it's, it's also important to note that the church will often, and I think for, for the majority of what the church teaches, the church comes out and says, here is what we believe as the Catholic church and that governments aren't expected to assent to that, right. That it, but Catholics are. And Mm -hmm. so just because the Catholic church is saying that this is their stance on it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to 
you know, be pushing all governments to do that. I think it would be great, right? Like in an ideal world, yeah, we would all just like totally be done with this. That isn't, that isn't in the cards, right? Just practically, that's not going to happen, like he said. But it's okay to say that this is where the church stands. And as a Catholic, I agree with that. And I am not okay with anyone possessing weapons like this. And to still understand that we do live in a fallen world. This is the world that we live in. And so that reality isn't really attainable, but it doesn't mean that the church should not make that claim, right? That the church should be steadfast in her positions on morality and in her defense of human life and human dignity. And so just because it's not a practical reality doesn't mean that the church shouldn't be talking about it. And she should. And it's also not new, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, the concept of just war goes back to Cicero and Augustine and Aquinas. And then just the concept that, you know, we cannot do an evil to get to a good, you know, St. Paul talks about this, that, that this is not a new concept for the church. And the church is just saying practically lived out in this circumstance. This is how this, this concept that we've always held is, interpreted in this specific circumstance. So it shouldn't, you know, if someone's listening and they're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, maybe I felt this way about the bomb, but I didn't, you know, understand this is what the church said about possession of these weapons. It doesn't mean that we have to go on this massive crusade against the United States government and be like, shut them all down. You know, I don't think that the Catholic church is necessarily encouraging or expecting us to do that, but it's still important to be steadfast in our position on it. Well, and I think there's an important distinction there that it's not necessarily the church's teaching on it. It's, it's, there's principles that come to bear that are absolutely being shared by the church, namely non-combatants can be targeted, proportionality should be met. And I would say we're at the point now with multiple popes saying that even possessing these things is wrong Mm -hmm. is a principle at this point. So, Mm -hmm. um, because that's what happens. We didn't have these. Now we have them. The church has to make a declaration on things that are that important. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to what does individual, what do individual governments need to do, and when, and how, and on what time frame, that's up to prudential judgment. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't stop the church from having something to say, like you said. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for it. We should be pushing, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean we should be demanding. Um, yeah. We need to help people see the truth about these arguments and call evil for what it is. Mm-hmm. while understanding that pragmatically there's there's multiple ways to do this. And mm-hmm. I think that's where the prudential judgment piece comes in. Um, so just to echo what you said, yeah, don't don't go and start a crusade to, like, you know, yeah. stop all nuclear weapons from existing. Because you're not going to get anywhere, frankly. So there's more important yeah. things to worry about. Um, yeah, and, and I think part of what I was trying to get at is that I think sometimes people can sometimes learn what the church teaches about a certain topic and feel really paralyzed when they realize they live in a society that isn't upholding certain principles or values. And it's just important to note that every single society is going to have laws that violate certain aspects of what the Catholic church holds as true. So we can't be paralyzed by that. We can't freak out about it. It's the nature of what it means to be human. And so it doesn't mean that we should also just numb ourselves to it. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything, but also we don't need to, we don't need to freak out about it because there are so many things in the United States that are legal that violate what the church believes about the human person and life. So, um, so we can't freak out about it, but we also should be able to then say, because there are a lot of prolific Catholics who have publicly said that 
the use of the atomic bomb in particular was justified and that it was a good decision. There are some very famous people who have said that very publicly. And that's also a place where people should then feel confident to say, just because you're a famous Catholic or just because, you know, I, I agree with you on these other things doesn't mean that in this particular circumstance you're in line with the church. And so it also should give us some prudence in who we're listening to. And I always, always, always tell everyone and my students especially to always actually go to the church itself and to read the church documents. And so, you know, we can talk about this, but, you know, all the documents we're citing are, are Vatican documents, you know, Gaudium et Spes and all these encyclicals that have talked about it. And so I would encourage the actual reading of those before, you know, listening to people who have made some very public statements about how positive they think the use of this weapon was. Well, and, and absolutely, just to, to piggyback on that, do not take anything we say at face value. Yeah. Like yeah. go, what's that old Question statement? Trust, trust, but verify. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. Like we, we try very hard to make good distinctions. That's our shtick. Um, and we <laughs> try very hard to be faithful to Jesus and his church always. Um, but we can be wrong. We can also be not completely informed. Um, mm-hmm. We are open-minded enough to change our mind when we're presented with the truth. But like Trace is saying, like go and actually read Pacham and Terrace. Go read mm-hmm. Gaudium et Space. Go read Evangelium Vitae. Mm-hmm. Actually read the documents in the context in which they were written. Don't read into them to try to find what supports your idea, but actually just read the words and say, okay, what is the Holy Father, whoever he may be, trying to say? Mm-hmm. What uh, is this bishop's conference trying to say or this bishop's conference? Or, or don't, but but don't trust individual voices on the internet, yeah. um, including us. I mean, we have opinions. They're great. I love our opinions. Um, <laughs> we stand by them generally. I, my opinions are the best. <laughs> um, but, but even like, something more recent, like say uh, the conflict in the Ukraine was Mm -hmm. hugely divisive in the sense that we weren't sure how much we should be giving Ukraine in terms of support and money and all these things. But it seemed like pretty much unanimously, nobody was defending Putin, Mm -hmm. at least in the United States, from Mm -hmm. what I could see. It was kind of a matter of how much virtue signaling are you, this is my cynical view, but how much virtue signaling are we going to do are you going to mm-hmm. make your profile picture of the Ukrainian flag? Or are you just going to say, yeah, Putin's an a-hole? Like, mm-hmm. ha- how far are we going to go? But what I did with my uh, students last year, which I thought was really interesting, is I gave them very little context. And I just said, I want to ask you a question. Actually, no, we're going to have Vladimir Putin ask you a question. So I, I, I brought up a speech from Putin talking about Ukraine in those subtitles. So they just read the subtitles and basically saying, you know, Ukraine is full of anti-Semite neo-Nazis and we're really just fighting against fascism, like everything he's been saying since the invasion. And uh, I said, I'm not going to tell you my opinion because really it doesn't matter, but I want you to do your research. You all have Chromebooks. Now go and figure out what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And I just watched their faces go from, this guy's ridiculous to, mm. oh my goodness, Ukraine has a huge neo-Nazi problem. Because mm. newsflash, they do. <laughs> like, mm. yes, yeah. Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish. He's not a neo-Nazi. Very clear. Yeah. I hope he's not. That would be really weird. Yeah. Um, and like, he, he seems very brave and there seems to be a lot of redeeming qualities. And like, 
These people are fighting for their homes and it's, it's a beautiful story of patriotism, but they also have a first world propaganda machine, like mm -hmm. a, a, a technological society's top notch propaganda machine. And so does mm -hmm. Russia. And so when we're looking at these things, we don't know what the truth is on a great many things that are being put in the media. Mm -hmm. Even when it comes to how much Congress is spending on various things or where that money's going, a lot of senators and, rep and representatives are asking questions saying, where's that money actually going? We don't know. Mm -hmm. It's going to third-party vendors, which are then giving money to Ukraine. Um, and so I'm very ambiguous about the whole thing. I, I, I do not think that the invasion was justified in any way, shape, or form. I think Putin is a psychopath uh, and a genocidal maniac. Um, he, he's murderous. I mean, we know that he kills people all the time, but he's not KGB. Okay. He's not KGB because there's no he KGB was. anymore, but he was, he was <laughs> KGB. So like, it's very clear that this is how the man operates. So it's, I mean, without getting like too political on this, I think it's very clear to say that the invasion of Ukraine was wrong. We can look at that and say, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now what's happening in Ukraine I don't know. And frankly, no one else does either. Unless you're yeah. actually there on the ground, we don't know. And so it, I think there's sort of an analog here with the end of World War II. Now imagine our global communication being scaled back to the point where you have radio. Mm -hmm. and, and that's it. No internet, no phone, or very little phones unless they're phone lines. Um, you have radio, you have some uh, walkie-talkie situations, but there's not a whole lot of instantaneous communication. We would be completely oblivious. We'd get an update every couple weeks in the paper. But I think that globalization, that, that connection, mm -hmm. has a lot of benefits. Um, obviously, sharing the gospel, knowing what the church teaches on a given subject. But in terms of actual on-the-ground things that are developing, Maybe it's just my radical mistrust of all governments, um, mm -hmm. but I don't trust. I don't trust Vladimir Putin, and I don't trust Ukraine. I I don't trust the American government most of the time to be honest and forthright, as we've Bring seen back in World the War Two. Kings, um, yeah, that never this. existed, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll make you the philosopher queen, and it'll be fine. Uh, I can't be president because you know I was born in Canada. Um, <laughs> I can't be president either. I was born in Germany. But you're American, right? So that counts. Uh, it? Yeah, but I wasn't born on American soil. Uh, well. I know. All so. right, someone else who's listening, carry on <laughs> our legacy. No, but I like everything I've said so far. I don't think it really touches on politics, but I, I think uh, anyway. I think the point to my rambling is we don't know a mm -hmm. lot about mm -hmm. much, <laughs> like right. And I think that's where coming back to principles that the church mm -hmm. teaches is so vital because mm -hmm. the principles don't change. The principles of right. faith and morals of the church don't change. The mm -hmm. circumstances change, the um, surroundings, the intentions of the people involved change. But mm -hmm. when we're talking about objects, uh, like you talked about in episode two, when it comes to looking at morality, if the object is I'm going to drop a bomb knowing that I'm going to target non-combatants, mm -hmm. no. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. whether you're American or Japanese or from Lesotho. Like, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And that's something where it's not a prudential judgment. 
It's a principle of faith and mm-hmm. morals. And those don't change whether you're Catholic right. or not Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think yeah. we have something to say there. Right. The Catholic yeah, Church sure. has something to say to the world, mm-hmm. which is very clearly not in the throes of Christendom anymore. Right. Yeah. But I, I think it, it's important, that point, that if you are are well-rooted in principles and in clear thinking, that you can make good clear judgments about really important things happening in the world. And I'm thinking of it, what you're saying is making me think about Elizabeth Anscombe is this brilliant British analytical philosopher, a very devout Catholic. And mm-hmm. in 1956, Oxford University wanted to give President Truman an honorary degree. And she was so against it. And she wrote this letter called Mr. Truman's Degree, where she laid out <laughs> her reasons why they shouldn't give it to him. And her point, she was using the principle of double effect, and most people look at points three and four in the principle of double effect to say that the use of this bomb was wrong. So the point of proportionality, and then the final point, which is you can't get to a good effect by using the bad effect to get there. So you can't pass through the bad effect to get to the good effect. So, you know, with the dropping of the bomb, we use the bad effect of the ending of all these lives to get to the good effect of ending the war. And her point was it it's never okay because it was inherently wrong, that because it was an act of terrorism, the demand was so strong that it was this unequivocal yeah. surrender. And so she wrote this brilliant piece, and I think probably one of her most famous pieces of all the other things mm-hmm. she wrote that she kind of just wrote on the fly and presented. And they didn't really listen to her. They still gave him this degree. But... I think it goes to your point that if you're well-rooted in principles and you spend time really thinking about them and grounding yourself in them, then you will be free and empowered to make good, strong claims about moral decisions. And that should give us, you know, in all of the chaos of our world, that can be very tumultuous and it can be really easy to feel bogged down by, at the very least, you know, the peace that we can find in that is our capacity to understand the morality of what's happening. And that should give us some confidence and freedom. Well, and going back to a lot of what we talked about in episode three, we might not be right on our perception of the principle. So we always need to have that in the back of our minds is like, okay, I need to be very clear Mm-hmm. on this. I need to think clearly about this principle and make sure that I'm understanding it as the church intends it. Because I mm-hmm. could be completely wrong. Take proportionality, for example. There's an entire group of moral theologians and and uh, ethicists who would subscribe to proportionalism, mm-hmm. which John Paul II spends almost all of very Tati's splendor to say why they're idiots. I mean, they're wrong. Um, he would never <laughs> say that. Maybe you would. Anyway, it's <laughs> no, he would he he very clearly showed how proportion proportionalism is mm-hmm. incorrect and why. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the difference between proportionality and proportionalism? Not a lot. There's a few ways that they diverge very clearly, but mm-hmm. in principle, they're using a lot of the same language. And this is the problem right. with modernism, but it's also a problem, especially with postmodernism, is words don't have the same meanings. Uh, a lot of our current issues in culture are a shell game of, well, this word used to mean this. Now it means this. Now it means whatever I want it to mean. Um, well, okay, that's very unhelpful. So we need to understand not only what does the church teach, but we need to also purify ourselves mm-hmm. of these sort of postmodern and modern ideas um, that are inherent in us because we live in this culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to... Uh, 
Scott Hahn was in town for something one day, Dr. Scott Hahn, and I, I asked him about something and I said, well, you know, you got to watch out for those modernists. And he said, ah, oh, be, be careful, Will. We're all a little bit modernist. And I was like, okay, Scott Hahn is telling me I need to be careful because we're all a little <laughs> bit modernist. Mm. And I'm like, that, that stuck with me, mm. partially because I, I look up to Dr. Hahn as a mentor. Mm. Like I, I went to Franciscan, he's a, a fantastic theologian, yeah. very faithful. But even he realizes, because mm-hmm. um, he's the first to admit, he's not a, he's not a humble man. <laughs> like he loves his opinions a lot. Um, and he's the first to share it, which actually makes him kind of humble. But um, yeah. but to admit that, no, even his thinking needs to be purified over and over mm-hmm. and over is a really good um, reminder to us that we need to do the same thing. If we think we understand a principle, we need to make sure we're understanding it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so that's where I think something like the conversation today is so important because there there are some things like this that are so cut and dry. We don't mm-hmm. need to really go over and over and over what a non-combatant mm-hmm. is to know mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be targeted. Yeah. Um, are they pointing a gun at you or not? I, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like kind of, there's some visceral right. things right. Um, that we can kind of understand. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about the principle of double effect, just for those who aren't familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think that's important because I think there's a, a creeping pacifism in the world, but even in the church as well, that I think on the one hand, you have these uber, uber, hyper nationalistic, patriotic Americans that are like, well, the, dropping the bomb's perfectly fine. Cause the, the damn Japanese deserved it. it. Yeah. And we, and because we did it. Yeah. Right. Like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, <laughs> don't question yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, yeah, violence is terrible in all circumstances. So mm-hmm. um, we should all just be pacifists. Mm-hmm. And nowhere in the history of the church does the church ever propose pacifism as a principle to be followed. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. But like Peter Kreftovin says, that means we need to be warriors against war. I, I mean, it sometimes it means fighting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we should relish in it. It doesn't mean that we should enjoy it. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that we should even want it as the first option. Mm-hmm. But for example, there is no way to combat Nazism by 1939 than to fight against Hitler with mm-hmm. weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very clear that he was not going to stop until he mm-hmm. took over everything he wanted to take over and kill countless people. Mm-hmm. That sort of aggression needs to be stopped with at least equal aggression, if not more. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think we can look at that on an individual level as well as a societal level. So anyway, Mm -hmm. what what is the principle of double effect? I know we've mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah, so in short, this is my students' favorite and least favorite topic because they're just like, what is going on? Um, So the principle of double effect is typically only used when there is a question of whether or not we can proceed with a certain action when there's one action that's being done and there's two effects, this is where we get the double effect idea. One of the effects is good and one of the effects is bad and we're trying to understand whether or not we can proceed. So it's a four-step process and if at any point in these four steps we find that the action that is being proposed violates, you just stop and you say it's unethical, we can't proceed. 
So it's not something where it's like, well, if you add up a certain number and if you have like this many, then maybe it can justify it. It's that if any of these steps are violated, the action is unethical and we cannot do it. So really quickly, and maybe at some point in the future, we can kind of break it down more. But the first step is that the action itself has to be morally good or at the very least neutral. So if it's inherently wrong, then you can't you can't proceed. So if it's like, go murder somebody, you just can't do that. So you would just stop at number one. The second point is that the agent, so the person doing the action, has to directly intend the good effect and only tolerate the bad effect. So it has to do with intention. So if the reason that the action is being done is to get the bad effect, then we should not be doing it. So we have to be intentionally trying to get to the good effect and only tolerating the bad effect. The third step is that the good and the bad effects have to be proportionate. So ideally, the good effect is greater than the bad effect, but at the very least, they have to be equal. And then the fourth step is that you cannot use the bad effect to get to the good effect. So if the bad effect happens first and the good effect happens as a direct result of the bad effect, it's unethical. They have to occur so, simultaneously. Correct. Yes. So so actual timeline really matters. And some people get very tripped up on that, but it actually matters when in time they occur. So this is used for a ton of things. It's used to think through you know, military decision-making. It's used all the time in medical ethics. So in my work in bioethics, we use this constantly. So for example, you know, if someone is pregnant and they have cancer in their uterus, you know, can you remove the uterus even with the knowledge that the baby that they're pregnant with may die? The principle of double effect would say yes, that that would actually be ethical because the action of removing uterus is neutral. The intention is good. We're trying to save the mother's life. We're only tolerating the potential side effect of the baby dying. The effects are proportionate and we're not using the death of the baby to get to the life of the mother being saved. We're using the surgery to get to, to that good effect. So we use this all the time in ethics. So in particular for this discussion, uh, some people would say, you know, again, Elizabeth Anscombe would say that the dropping of the atomic bomb violated number one, that it was inherently wrong. But, you know, I think even if you go, you know, number two, it's clear. It, it upholds number two that, we were directly intending the good effect and only tolerating the bad effect of all the Japanese lives lost. Number three, people debate this. I think you made a great point that it would violate the proportionality aspect. But even if you grant that it, the dropping of the bomb passed all three steps, it would violate step number four, where you're using the bad effect to get to the good effect, and therefore it can never be ethically justified. Mm-hmm. So I do, I think that um, it's really helpful in being able to determine what the right course of action is and to be able to have a middle ground between, you know, this kind of hypernationalism and this pacifism. And that as Catholics, you know, there are certain courses of action that are ethical in warfare and in interpersonal relationships. There are things that are worth standing up for. There are things that are worth fighting against. There are things that are worth defending. And sometimes that might mean that violence as a proportionate response is necessary. We can say that while bearing in mind that peace is the objective, right? That that it is the ideal situation that we live in peace. That's the state of heaven. You know, there's no war in heaven. And I think sometimes we forget that we're made totally for peace and that we're not made to be pitted against one another. We're not made to be mm. prepared at any moment to go to war. But it is 
prudent and it is appropriate as a country and as a society to be prepared to respond to aggressors. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we're, we're promoting violence or anything like that. You know, St. Augustine says that the only just reason to go to war is to promote peace. And I would say that that's a great way to look at it, that peace mm-hmm. and goodness and unity can be the ultimate goal. Um, but it doesn't mean that we just take things lying down and it doesn't mean that there aren't things that are worth responding to and defending and standing up against. Well, and this can result in absolute tragedies, even if it's a acceptable moral action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like the example that of the, the uterus being removed and the baby, like we know the baby will die in most cases, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? That's tragic. <clears throat> but at the same time, we can understand morally how it is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not obviously desirable. Right. Yeah. And we're not the promoting same sort that of thing. at all. No, no. And it's the same thing. I, I use the example of self-defense mm-hmm. uh, in a home as a, mm-hmm. as an easy example. And I do this with my students and they intuitively just get it. Um, Cause I talk about this when I talk about the bomb is uh, proportionality to an extent and also double effect where like I say, okay, somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you want to defend innocent human life. Well, that's the good that you're mm-hmm. seeking, right? If you defend yourself, this other person might die. That's the bad effect that you're tolerating. Now, immediately, if you wake up and you say, ah, finally, I've been waiting for this day my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, time to go and mm-hmm. kill somebody. Well, okay, that's murder. Yeah. So like you said, like in stopping number one, you're a murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Don't do that. Um, but normal normal individuals that aren't psychopathic mm-hmm. would say, uh, I want to defend innocent human life. I'm in fear of my life. I'm going to defend myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I asked them, well, if you, if it's in the middle of the night and it's dark and you don't know what kind of weapon that they have, are you justified in using a baseball bat to defend yourself? And they all go, well, it's probably not the best option, but yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. What about if you used a pistol? And I just keep going up and I say, well, what about Mm -hmm. a rifle? What about a shotgun? And then I say, well, what about a rocket launcher? And they just immediately go, well, no, that's ridiculous. I'm like, why is it ridiculous? And they're like, well, it could go through the window into the neighbor's house and blow them up. Like, yes, exactly. It's disproportionate. Mm -hmm. It's very clearly disproportionate. So I think... um, yeah. We can kind of intuitively understand some mm-hmm. of these things without having to right. go too deep into the weeds. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, that's clearly not right. Mm-hmm. Um, now we can we can explain why, and we just did. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even someone who's never really looked at ethics can go, okay, yeah, baseball bat, mm-hmm. rifle, shotgun, rifle, uh, pistol, fine, fine, fine. Mm-hmm. Rocket launcher, no. Flamethrower, mm-hmm. no. Um, like, right? Yeah. Just just no. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that is helpful too in thinking through the principle of double effect and how we use it is, like you said, I think people often have a good intuition about what is right or wrong. And it's just helpful to have words and principles to help them articulate and think through it. So for example, one of the you know ideas in medicine that the principle of double effect is kind of classically used for is the idea of chemotherapy, right? So you have one action, there's a good effect and a bad effect, right? Chemotherapy makes you really, really sick, but there's a potential good effect of you may cure cancer here. And we can, most people will intuitively understand that's not inherently wrong, but it gives them a way to think through why and to help them process it. But Mm -hmm. just because something 
is okay via the principle of double effect doesn't mean that you're obligated to do that thing. Mm -hmm. And so your conscience and the decision of your conscience is still vital and very, very important. And so the principle of double effect should really only be used to help in discernment, right? So that if something violates principle of double effect, we should not be doing it. We should not be engaging in that activity. But just because something passes the principle of double effect also doesn't mean you're obligated to then do that action. So this mm. is the St. Gianna example, right? Yeah. That she she could have, you know, via the principle of double effect, you know, gotten treatment for her cancer and the baby she was pregnant with may have died. That could have been a justified action. And she still, based on the decision of her conscience, chose not to do that. So just to know that it's not morally binding if an action passes mm-hmm. it, you don't have to do it. And I think some people get kind of tripped up on that. Yeah, it's not a matter of uh it's not a matter of admitting something, it's a matter of denying it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Much like uh a couple of different instances in the Oppenheimer movie. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not gonna get into that. We don't, no spoilers. <laughs> Although I will say I was with a, a bunch of friends at the movie and uh, I was just thinking the whole time, I'm like, man, this is uh, the first movie where I, I know all of the spoilers. Like, this is kind of weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. A couple of my friends had no idea what was coming <laughs> and they were like, yeah. what's this about? I don't even know who Oppenheimer is. Well, it's Oppenheimer. That's anyway. so wild to walk into it, not knowing. But I, not only did I know what was coming, but like I've lectured on it. So like, mm-hmm. I know pretty detailed what's happening. Yeah. Like, uh, Klaus Fuchs shows up and I lean over to my friend and I'm like, ugh. Soviet turncoat <laughs> and she's like spoiler alert <laughs> I'm like, oh sorry I mean it happened like 70 something years ago but whatever <laughs> yeah that's on your history teacher at that point so <laughs> uh, anyway it, yeah it was it's a good movie there uh it's there's so a couple of um there's a couple of sex scenes in it a little bit of nudity mm-hmm. I've seen some people online that are saying you should absolutely not go and see it because it's evil and you shouldn't sin by even viewing these things. Um, so we've already been going for about an hour and a half or so, but I feel like it's worth touching on because I guarantee you, if somebody's listening to us, they're probably thinking, how can they think this is okay? Especially if mm-hmm. they've read uh, certain things online. So mm-hmm. um, uh, wh- wh- what do you think? Yeah, I I think, well, I have a lot of thoughts on the idea of, you know, as Catholics, can we consume or engage with content that is explicit in some way, you know, whether it's, you know, nudity, sexuality, whether it's language, whether it's violence, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a practical view of it, which is a lot of those things you just cannot avoid, right? It's impossible to live our lives avoiding the consumption of things that are immoral. You cannot walk around a mall. You cannot watch your television. You cannot be on the internet without being exposed to those things. So it's a very impractical idea that that we have even the capacity to avoid these things. But in regards to the intentional viewing of that, um, I think that knowing that there's sin in the world and that human beings are fallen and that human beings are extremely complex is not a bad thing. And it's it's okay to consume uh, content that has explicit scenes in it 
as long as your reason for consuming that content isn't to engage with that explicit scene, right? If, if the reason that you're going to see the Oppenheimer movie is for the two sex scenes, then yeah, maybe don't see the movie. Um, but if, if that's just part of this greater story, that's, I think, emblematic of what it means to be human, right? That like mm-hmm. sin and mistakes are part of the greater story of what it means to be human. It's part of the greater story of redemption. And as long as there's clarity of thought and understanding in regards to that, that we're able to say, yeah, that's wrong. We know that that's wrong. We know it's wrong to cheat on your spouse. Then, then there's a freedom in consuming that content and, and we don't need to freak out about it. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of when the screw tape letters was being written and C.S. Lewis was kind of running it by Tolkien and Tolkien was like, don't mess with this. Like you, you can't write this explicitly about evil. And then C.S. Lewis just ends up dedicating it to him. And because his point was <laughs> this exists, right? Like we yeah. can't hide from this. And it seems almost foolish to pretend that we don't live in a world where evil exists. And so we might as well have a view to it of, yeah, there's redemption and there are also consequences to bad action. And I would definitely say don't bring a 10-year-old to see Oppenheimer, right? That that there's just an area yeah, rated, of just rated R prudent. for a reason. Yeah. Like don't for adults. Don't, yeah. Adults are capable of handling that, I think. And and if you're not, then know yourself, right? Self-knowledge is important. And so, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, gosh, yeah, I can't, you know, it sounds great, but I don't think I could personally right now in this season of my life, I, I don't think I could consume that. That's great self-knowledge, right? That's mm-hmm. your own conscience acting. And so follow that. But I don't think that avoiding any type of media, whether it's social media, whether it's movies, whether it's books, simply because there's evil in it is a prudent decision. And I also don't think it's a Catholic one. I think the the wonderful, beautiful thing about the Catholic church is that it's nitty gritty and we're able to take certain examples or views of sin or mistakes and say, thank goodness there's redemption here. And thank goodness, you know, we have a way to understand, yeah, there's consequences to my human action, but there's also mercy and redemption. So that's kind of my take on it. What do you think about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's some merit to the arguments that it's unnecessary, um, Mm -hmm. in most cases, almost every case. So there's that. I think that even simulated sexual acts between actors who are uh, sort of exposing this to the world um, and are not married, and even if they are married, they shouldn't be doing it in front of a camera, um, Mm -hmm. knowing that like the actors, by and large, are not actually having sex. Mm -hmm. Um, They might not even be fully nude, like in front of each other. Yeah, they're generally Like there's ways, there's camera tricks like this. It seems like in Oppenheimer they are, um, but at the same time, at least there's there's uh, some frontal nudity of the woman and these sorts of mm-hmm. things. But like, is that in itself evil and to be shunned? Like, obviously there's modesty and we should be modest. So like, I love giving the this principle of like, no, this is actually wrong. It shouldn't be in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't want it in the movie. It shouldn't be in the movie. It's unnecessary. Does it actually help anything or further the plot? No. Um, is it sinful for these actors to do that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not, they're pretending, but at some point when you take all your clothes off, you're not really pretending anymore. You're actually just standing nude in front of that other actor, the director, the cameraman, and a whole host of other people, which is mm-hmm. not modest. It is wrong. 
Um, I wouldn't want that for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we can acknowledge that, but I think to have a rigorous view where you say, well, because of that, it, it will cause everyone to watch it to sin. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I think that does such harm to the intentionality of the adults watching the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because, well, frankly, I, I think nudity is not intrinsically evil. Um, last I checked, I think everyone enters be. the world pretty darn yeah. naked. Um, but obviously, like, we live in a fallen world. Lust is a real thing. Um, <clears throat> Jesus says, whoever looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is, like, we're playing with fire in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. But that's where we need to have self-knowledge. And especially people who are dealing with, like, they're in the throes of a pornography issue or something like that. Like, let me be clear. Don't watch this movie. Do not go to it. Don't spend your money on it. Don't go and sit in the theater. Don't try to figure out what time it is and go to the bathroom and come back. Just Mm -hmm. don't mess with it because you will get burned. Yeah. But for the, for the people who can handle it, um, like I can say with a hundred percent honesty that when I watched the movie, I did not look at Florence Pugh's character with lust. First of all, I knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of mentally prepared. And secondly, um, I was so into the movie and the script and the acting that I, I kind of didn't even really pay it a second attention. I was just kind of thinking, and I know we talked about this before the, we rolled, it's like, I was kind of analyzing the scenes and the dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. cause that's the kind of weird thing about these sex scenes is there's a lot of dialogue in them, which yeah. is a little uncomfortable, but I think what we talked about before is like, yeah, it's uncomfortable for the actors and for the people watching the movie. And that's kind of the point. You, mm-hmm. you got to watch the movie to see that. But again, if, if you can't handle that, then don't. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so I think it is something that's people need to make the good prudential decision for themselves to determine whether or not they can handle these sorts of things. And if they can't, don't mess with it. It's not worth being in the know. It's not worth taking part in this pop cultural moment, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely not worth your soul. Yeah, yeah. But at the same not. time, it's kind of like, I, I don't know if this is, accurate or not, but it's kind of like the principle of double effect in a sense, um, in that we're viewing the good, which is enjoying a good film that's historically accurate, that has a good message to ponder while mm-hmm. tolerating the bad effect, which mm-hmm. is simultaneously because it's happening during the movie, mm-hmm. um, and then sort of analyzing it from that perspective. Maybe that's not the principle of double effect exactly, mm-hmm. but I think I there's think something there. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, you made a really good point when we were talking about this earlier, that these scenes are not really steamy. Like they're not scenes that you would typically think of as sex scenes in a movie. They're very uncomfortable to watch because Mm -hmm. they're, they're portraying this really deep interior struggle. I'm trying to speak about this without giving anything about the movie away, but this, this really intense struggle that he's having in his life and his, you know, own wrestling with the overall morality of the decisions that he's making. And so, so they're not scenes that are designed really, I don't think to, you know, initiate lust in anyone. They're really meant to portray the fact that he was wrestling with his conscience in multiple areas of his life and mm-hmm. was really seeking truth. He, he really was in, in pretty much every area of his life. He, he has a line at one point where he says, you know, I, I'm a free thinker and he really cared about truth and was trying to find it. And sometimes in that search, we go down paths that 
are not the best for us. But I do think that those scenes in particular portray that whatever we do with our body really matters to us. And I think that's a good message. You know, that's why JP2 spent the first five years of his papacy talking about sexuality, because he was trying to make the point that what we do with our body affects our soul and we can't escape that reality. We can't escape this union between the two. And that will seep into other areas of our life that you cannot, you know, go to your work and, you know, just shut that area of your life off, that it it will, it will seep into other aspects of your life. And I think that's a good reminder. I think that reminder can obviously be made without, you know, maybe as much of an explicit portrayal, but I do think that's, you know, also again, you know, kind of the Catholic interpretation of those things is that there's, you know, the devil doesn't, doesn't own these things. He's just twisting what's good. And I mm-hmm. think if we're able to view that and kind of untwist it and say, okay, what's the truth here, then it can actually be a really edifying experience. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I don't want anyone listening to think that we're um, defending these sex scenes. Yeah. We're not, we both think that they're completely unnecessary. Shouldn't be in there. Yeah. Um, but are they so egregious? Is it such an occasion for sin that you can't watch Oppenheimer? My prudential decision is no. Unless, again, caveats, if you're dealing with something like um, Mm -hmm. sexual addiction or pornography addiction or something like that, and you just can't go there, then don't. Yeah. But otherwise, I I think that people need to make the best prudential decision for themselves. Mm -hmm. And please, for the love of God, allow people to make different choices when we can, which -hmm. is what I was getting at earlier, is there's principles that we can't differ on. The principles Mm -hmm. of faith and morals of the church are what they are. But when it comes to prudential judgment and decisions and opinions and um, in all sorts of prudential matters, there's a heck of a lot of gray area. And we need to respect people enough to make choices for themselves. Mm-hmm. We can't, yeah. we shouldn't allow people to sin if we can do something to stop it. Like mm-hmm. if somebody comes to us for advice and they're like, should I do this thing? And you know, it's sinful, then you have an obligation to stop them and like instruct mm-hmm. the ignorant, right? Right, and right. if somebody does something that's sinful and they come to you for advice, you should admonish the sinner. Like these are all things that are part and parcel of being a Christian and following Christ. But we also need to remember that we live in a fallen world. And sometimes that means, like you said, the devil isn't trying, the, the devil can't create anything. He just twists what already is in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I love theology of the body so much, because it reminds us that we are body and soul. And that our bodies aren't evil. Our bodies aren't bad. We should be modest because like I'm married, my body belongs to my wife and vice versa. Mm-hmm. That's that. So, and, and for someone who is not married, like their body belongs to them and no one else. So mm-hmm. like there's a, a real understanding that having bodily autonomy and having modesty and, and virtue of chastity and all these things, these aren't just sort of pie in the sky things that we should aim towards. These are tangible things that we must seek to pursue. Uh, This is one of the big things in the controversy of Humanae Vitae, which I'm not trying to open this can of worms here. However, we're all (laughs) going for another two hours. (laughs) Um, We could, but my main point is that a lot of the uh, progressive arguments against Humanae Vitae were that, well, this is a nice theory. This is a nice, uh, you know, something to aim for, but it's not really something that we could ever actually get well that's that's a lie that's that's Mm -hmm. from the pits of hell like no Mm -hmm. jesus says be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect 
what he doesn't mean is on your own power. So mm-hmm. we need grace and we, we shouldn't expect to be perfect now, but that aiming for the highest good that, that tell the telos of like aiming for God needs to be there all the time. Yep. And so we shouldn't tolerate evil um, <clears throat> unless there is a very clear principle of double effect thing going on, which is kind of mm-hmm. what we've been talking about. But yeah. when there's clear evil manifest evil, no, we should reject it. And we should say absolutely not because mm-hmm. it's not merely some sort of goal to work towards, to be good, to be perfect. Right. Right. Yeah. A man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's heaven for. Mm. Who said that? Mm-hmm. You know, as I was saying it, I was worried you were going to ask me that. I, I believe think it's it was G. Mother Teresa who said, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it's not Hitler. Mother Teresa, it's G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's G.K. Chesterton. Um, anyway, yeah, no, I think it's a good point. You know, that we have to trust that other people are following their consciences and their conscience is not mine to make a decision about, right? And so, uh, yeah, we have to have trust in each other and not be scrutinizing the decisions of other people or questioning it. And yeah, in times where it's important to speak up, we speak up, you know, and we don't hide from that. But um, in general, you know, if you're just like, why haven't you seen this or whatever, it's like, trust that people are making decisions that are best for themselves. And you also want that trust given to you. So. Well, and also understanding, balancing that with that, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That we, there was a, I was talking about this with some friends, um, not about Oppenheimer, but about another movie that's coming out and this idea of, well, there's going to be sex scenes in it, so we shouldn't go see it. And they brought up the what they called the principle of the integral good, which came from a book by Father Ripperger by way of St. Thomas Aquinas, which basically the point that this person was making was, well, if it's not perfect, if it's not integrally, integrally good, then it's not good. And that's just... I don't think we need to really go into it because we've already talked they have an mostly iPhone. about how ridiculous it, they don't have an iPhone. No. Um, oh, well, they consistency at least. Pretty consistent. <laughs> pretty consistent. Yeah, but no, I, I, it's just, it seems like we can get so into these rigorous positions mm-hmm. that we lose sight of the point. We lose sight of, of holiness and growth and virtue um, and a lot of other things, which, <clears throat> speaking of which, We'll point people back to episode five on radical traditionalism and point people towards next week's episode on <laughs> growth and virtue. Um, so we actually do have a plan great. of sorts when we make these things. Um, sometimes. At least sometimes. We, we allow the Holy Spirit <laughs> a lot of room to operate. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I think we've I think we've droned on enough today. Yeah. Oh, speaking of drones. <laughs> Do we want to talk about drones and warfare? No, I'm just kidding. We're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> another day, another day. I think actually, um, if I remember right, we do plan on talking about just war theory more substantially mm-hmm. closer to Veterans Day. Yes, um, yeah, and wartime so ethics. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about wartime ethics. We'll talk about drones. We'll talk about all kinds of spicy stuff. So it's going to be fun, special guests on. It's going to be awesome. Yes. So definitely subscribe at uh, gooddistinctions.com. Also on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. And uh, if you feel like these episodes and everything else that we put out are beneficial to you, 
If you think this is something that you'd like to support, you can provide financial support to us on Substack at gooddistinctions.com. We're also formulating some ideas about what that would offer you in addition to just being a a good human being, um, helping (laughs) us out, which we love. Big support of that. Uh, but we're we're kind of formulating that. So be on the lookout. But again, in order to figure out what these things might be, go and subscribe for free at gooddistinctions.com. And uh, we'll be sending out some more stuff in the coming days. Yeah, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Teresa, for a great conversation on mm-hmm. atomic warfare, Oppenheimer, movies, the Catholic view of principles of morality and faith. And prudential judgment. I mean, we covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, we really went on. We went all in there. Yeah, it was a great time. (laughs) Always more to talk about. I could talk to you for hours. So we will cut it short. I'm Will Wright. I'm Teresa Morris. And good distinctions are the spice of life. We'll see you next week. Bye.